Hey everyone, welcome to the Communication Coach Podcast, where I'm going to help you to create successful change through powerful and honest conversations. I am your host, Nikki Perfect. Hi Jess, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast today. And uh, just talking to you before we started recording, you started telling me about your amazing story. So please start from wherever you want to start from. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll, um, we'll go from there. I look forward to hearing it. Thank you. Thank you for having me as well. Um, yeah. So basically, I now run a circus school called Showtime Circus and I feel like I finally basically found my calling that's what I have meant to be doing for my whole life (laughs) but it's taken me a long time to get here Um, and now that I'm here I'm so happy that I'm here but obviously there's been highs and lows in the journey to get here so um, I have been was still am kind of a professional performer for uh, 10 years maybe longer I went moved from Liverpool I don't know if you can tell my accent moved from Liverpool down to London to go to dance college and then uh, left dance college and traveled the world and then when I left dance college at 21 I met my partner Matt Beadle, uh, and we were so in love. He was our first boyfriend. He was just, he was amazing. Had the biggest smile, the biggest head, <laughs> and he was uh, physically so fit. And we were um, dating for four years when he passed away. He had um, Brugada, which is a cardiac symptom, like cardiac, uh, or what do you call it? you know what I mean disease and he um just his heart just suddenly stopped uh he was in Starlight Express at the time so very 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 fit um and looked after his buddy Mm. and so it was a real shock I was away on a cruise ship I hadn't seen him for eight months and apparently he'd been planning our wedding for us whilst we were all apart thanks Mark mm. <laughs> um, and so it was really heartbreaking to get that phone call to say that he'd passed away um obviously very unexpected he was only 32 at the time yeah uh, I got in touch with a charity called Cry, Cardiac Risk in the Young, because one of my friend's cousins has, had actually passed away suddenly as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are amazing. We've risen, rose, risen, rose, risen? We've yeah. raised. Raised. Raised money. Sorry. We've raised a lot of money for Cry, Cardiac Risk in the Young, because they can literally test to see if you have any underlying heart conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, Matt had a virus called Brugada, which he could have been born with or could have picked up, um, and it just meant that his heart just stopped. Now, the the main symptom of any of these underlying heart conditions is death, Mm -hmm. and that's the first symptom, so that's really heartbreaking. Wow. 12 people a week between the ages of 14 and 24 or is it 12 and 24 no i'm completely lying i'm so sorry between the ages of 12 and 34 yep. die a week 12 people die a week of underlying heart conditions wow and so that's like a huge figure that's mm. a lot of people um so obviously cardiac risk in the young sorry go on 
Is that just in the UK? That's in the UK, yeah. Wow. Just yeah. in the UK. Um, and so Cardiac Risk in the Young um, are a charity who test people. They pay for the tests. And it's a special, it's uh, not a special test. It's just an ECG. Uh, but the people can really, who check it can really see if there's any underlying conditions at all in the results that they get. And it took literally 20 minutes. So it's quite heartbreaking to know that he would still be here if he'd had one of them. Um, in Italy, if you're part of a group sport, then you already have one, I believe. You already have the test. Um, so obviously that saves a lot of lives because it, there's a lot of footballers as well that um, have passed away suddenly because of mm. it. Um, it's kind of more of a shock when it's people like that, but it, when it's sporty people who are fit, but it can just affect anybody um, in between those ages. And basically they can check to see if you've got it and if you have then it's a significant life change so it's less exercising you have to take beta blockers you know so it is a big life change and for Matt that would have been really difficult but he would still be here mm. and the reason why the UK government doesn't do it as part like doesn't test every child even though it's like the facts are there they show they show us how high the risk is and um, it's just because it's not accurate enough it's not quite accurate enough yet and these children could change their lives essentially and not do any exercise um etc because there's a risk of it and because it's the accuracy isn't there yet it's not rolled out mm. to a lot of children which just yeah again it's quite heartbreaking to think people are just passing away from this um <clears throat> yeah so my mission has been for a long time to spread awareness, to get your heart checked, just make sure there's nothing going on. Because um, as I said, Matt was fit and healthy. You'd never have known anything was wrong at all. Um, yeah. And he just passed away at 32. He was on a stag do and he was having a fabulous time. So, <laughs> so it's nice to look back. And our mem the memories that we have are amazing together. And I'm, I finally got to a point eight years later where I can look back and smile at the memories. But I would hate for anybody to go through what I've been through, knowing that it can be stopped by mm. just a simple test. Yeah, wow. Because it, it, it does sound like you are in a place where you can talk about it, that you've moved forward. Um, with it not from it with it um so in in those early days when you first lost Matt how did you find that people reacted to you personally um they were very very supportive mm -hmm. um I was so lucky with my friends and family they really did come together and support me they had no idea how what they could do I had no idea what they could do to help me either um mm -hmm. I didn't want to talk about him. I wanted to run away from everything. Um, people didn't, people, uh, there's a saying and I hate it, uh, that people used to say to me and f for the first few months I would just bite my tongue and then I think I must have hit the angry phase and I started screaming back. <laughs> but people would be like, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. No, 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 it doesn't please explain to me why this has happened then because he was a fantastic person you know like he there was no wrong at all and you know these awful people don't drop dead from heart conditions so what is that reason and um, so a lot of people just would say that as like a, I don't know what else to say to you I'm so I'm just gonna say this and I would just be very polite and be like mm. but then I just got to the point where I was like no no like no it yeah. doesn't so don't say that please you know it hurts actually There's yeah yeah so so in grief we find that people 
don't know how to talk to somebody who's grieving yeah. uh, or experienced a huge loss. And, and we have so many great phrases to cover the awkwardness, don't we? Yeah, for um, sure. Especially in the UK. When we, we talk about that tip of the iceberg conversation that doesn't mean very much and there's so much more to say. And I, it sounds like you got to a point where it, it was, can we just like, can we either talk about this yeah. or can we move on from it? Yeah. Not have cliche conversations that don't mean anything. Yeah. Mm. That was exactly where I was. Because I would just be like, you have no idea. The fact that you just said that means that you can say, you can say, I'm sorry. You can try and, but the fact that you've just said that to me means you have no idea of how much pain everybody who loves them is in right now. Mm. So yeah. It just cuts the point. No, no, no. I'm not hearing that anymore. <laughs> right, yeah. I think, but the thing is, when somebody now, you know, somebody grieves their own, re- whatever they're grieving, mm. I've been through that huge thing. And I still struggle to speak to people who are grieving. And so mm. you, you, you can't expect people to understand because every story is different. And that's what's so interesting when you speak to so many people is every story is completely different. And... Mm. Um, and even if you have been through very, very similar things, it's not the same path. And it's hard to, it's kind of, what's the, di- the difference between sympathy and empathy, isn't it? It's that you've lived it and so you can feel it. Um, yeah. Or you haven't lived it and so you can just watch from the side. I'm yeah. There. <laughs> you know? One of my um, ex-bosses, he, when I was doing negotiation, he used to say to me about empathy, he said, you'll never understand somebody and and the older I've got the more I've realized that because we walk a different path we've all had different experiences what we have is emotions that are the same as human beings but our emotions are triggered by different things as well which which is fascinating and really interesting so I, I can relate to the fact that you've lost somebody that I have no idea how you would have processed that and how you would have felt in different moments and he used to say stick one of your feet in their shoes and keep the other one in yours yeah and as you move along just listen to how they're feeling and keep it about them Mm -hmm. so he would always say listen for that emotion and just pick up on that and let them run with the emotion and just be there supporting that emotion at the time yeah yeah that's so lovely actually that's really wise man yeah Yeah. and if he's listening he'll know who he is (laughs) Yeah. So you had the death of Matt to deal with at a young age. You hadn't seen him for eight months. You were away. What what happened next in your journey? So in my journey next, I ran away. (laughs) So off I went to the Caribbean on a cruise ship to just completely forget about life. Mm -hmm. And off I went as a performer, travelled around literally around the world, um, having the best time completely forgetting that I had this to deal with when I came home and then I came home and obviously you know real anxiety depression you know really really hit me I was actually diagnosed with PTSD um mm-hmm. because of because I'd literally ran away mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I read about it and I was like no way that I can't have that you know no way but actually the symptoms are very very true um so I've done a lot of work on myself with therapy CBT and NLP therapy Mm -hmm. um to be able to understand understand it and as you say like work through it Mm -hmm. um 
because Matt was such a fantastic person he would want he would definitely there's no question of a doubt he would want me to be happy like 100 mm. percent um so it is, it is like get, working through it um and so I decided to stop dancing because I was running away all of the time and I couldn't deal with coming back to dealing with that every time and so I decided to <laughs> decided that I wanted to go to vet school so I did my my um science a levels again in a year because I'd already had I already got them but they were too old um so I did all my science A levels again in a year and then I got into Bristol vet school to study vet med which in itself is like a huge achievement mm. as a dancer you know nobody thinks you can get into vet school and then I went <laughs> and um I'd I had actually been on a gig in Kuwait just before I went and on that gig I met a new partner and that partner I thought was the love of like oh my goodness here he is you know fell I say in love at first sight. I say that in these quote marks now mm. that I know better and wiser. Um, and I'd met him and then I went off to vet school and because I was so head over heels in love with this person that I'd met, I didn't really give vet school, you know, the chance that I should have. Um, maybe I wasn't, it was really tricky to be in Bristol. I had to fund everything myself. So I already had a degree in dance. Um, so it was really tricky lifestyle. And I actually ended up leaving to, run away with the circus okay. and do I'm going to just stop you there because <laughs> that's a that's a that's a big story crammed into just a few I thought you had loads I was like oh you'll have to pick one <laughs> I know so it's just I'm just going to take you back right to uh running away so you said you ran away eventually yeah. not run away to the circus but when you ran away to the yeah. Caribbean to do your dancing and then you came back and you had PTSD which yeah which you weren't aware of. So how how long were you in the Caribbean for? Uh, I was in the Caribbean for four months and then I came back and very quickly went to Benidorm and did a contract in Benidorm for another four months. <laughs> and was that to stop you being in the UK to face up to what had happened? Yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you just weren't ready to. And so the, the um, not the easiest option, but the Oh, perhaps even the only option for you at the time yeah. was to go off and be away from a grieving family. Yeah. Yes. And um, at the time, I'd actually, I'd written to Cosmopolitan magazine whilst I was away and said, like, I think it'd be great to do a feature um, on cardiac risk because uh, basically on Cosmopolitan, I'd read, I used to read it all the time. It was like my Bible. It's not so much anymore. But when I was younger, it was like my Bible. And I'd read it and I would be like, I read this thing about, um, you know, your cervical screening and I read it and I went and got a check. I booked my check. So I thought I'll get in contact with them and I'll say, if, some, if somebody reads this and then goes and gets their heart checked, mm. how epic is that? Yeah. So whilst I was away, running away, I actually did manage to get into Cosmopolitan magazine. So they did a huge interview with me. And then when I was in Benidorm, again, performing as a showgirl, living the best life, going out every night, you know, forgetting that anything had happened. It was released in Cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. And it was in Spain, like it was all over the place. And then these girls who knew me as this party girl with absolutely no worries, carefree, were like, Jess, what's, Jess, what's this? And I was like, like it hit me, you know, and then they saw full grief, you know, and I was like, this is what grieving looks like. And that's how I've hidden it. Because they knew me as this girl who was like, la, 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 let's have another wine. Mm. They didn't think about anything. And then this magazine came out with all of this story and they were just like, whoa 
you know? Yeah. So then when I got back from Benidorm, that's when I was diagnosed with PTSD because I think that's when it really hit me. Uh, I really struggled getting out of bed. I had no desire to do anything. Hmm. Yeah, it was a really tough time. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you were dealing with it by not dealing with it. Yes. And then when you had to deal with it, that's when it kind of hit you like a ton of bricks and, and inset the very low mood. The, yes. Were you able to leave the house or you were unable to? I um, have very, very supportive parents and I was actually living with them because obviously I'd been traveling around. So I didn't really, I didn't have my own place. So I went back to my parents and very supportive and very knowledgeable about mental health. Mm. They didn't see it in me themselves because obviously you never do, do you? you never see it in the people that you love um, until I had to go to the job center, you know, obviously trying to find a job and I found myself on the floor because, you know, you find yourself on the floor and you've, got PTSD and you don't know how you got there uh, and it was one of my dad's friends actually found me I was like um I think you need to come and get Jess <laughs> and that's when they were sort of like okay we need to get us some help we'll you know I was very lucky with how much they support me and managed to find me a nice counsellor who did CBT and she was amazing and mm -hmm. um, so worked through that for quite some time and that's when the decisions to maybe not dance anymore sort of came in yeah so yeah. So looking back on that period of your life, uh, what lessons have you personally taken from it? Because I know we'll all take a different lesson from, from your story, but what did you personally take from it? That honestly, you would, everybody is living their own story life journey so even if you see that party girl with no cares in the world or if you see the strongest mum you know with five kids and she's amazing and she's got it all maybe underneath there's something going on and you just need to be caring gentle take time to listen and you know also ride that wave with them if they're if you're the girl they want to party with be that person if you're the person they want to actually they feel comfortable opening and up up to you be that person you know don't shun any worries or don't tell them that they need to do this and this and this that's what they want you for right now so go with it and you just never know what is actually going on so just be gentle with you know anything you do say or any judgments that you make in fact don't make any judgments because we just don't know do we what's going on so yeah and, and judgments are such a hard thing, aren't they? Because you automatically make them if you, even when you're trying hard not to. Yeah. You hear that little voice go, oh, that must be. And it's like, hang on a sec. You don't yeah. know that. You're making an assumption and giving an opinion when, as you say, all we're seeing at the moment is the tip of the iceberg and have no idea what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. So, yeah. Great. So, you, um, so your, your parents helped you. You got some counselling that really helped you along how long was your counseling for if you don't mind me asking I think I had about six months of CBT and she was brilliant she I honestly I think she did the children's version on me because <laughs> <laughs> I had to like color myself in I had to like throw paint I had to pick toys out of a box I honestly think I'd like regressed into being a child but it worked for me it was fantastic I'd highly recommend it um it worked so I think I did about six months with her and then I ended up moving away which is why I ended up stopping Right, uh, uh, CBT. Uh huh. So, so you moved away. So that's the next part of your journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I went to Bristol. Okay. Awesome. And you went to Bristol and decided to become a vet. 
So <laughs> redid your A levels in a year. Yeah. And then started veterinary uh, college. How, veterinary college is what? Is it seven seven years to be a veterinary? Five years. Five years. Five years yeah. Okay, I only ask because my um my little one who's thirteen wants to be a vet. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell them to <laughs> So five years, yeah, and then um, and then you met this man. Yes. Where you in inverted commas fell in love with. Yes. Um, and hindsight is hindsight is an amazing thing to have, and but it's not there right at the beginning. So. Tell us what happened next. So I, as I said, just didn't really give vet school the full attention because I thought I was always just in this whirlwind of love and romance and it's called love bombing. And, you know, and it honestly, to me, I think it wasn't just that. It was that I am not very good at being told what to do either. So I was in vet school with all of these 18 year olds being told that I wasn't allowed to drive to vet school, even though I had to drive straight to work because I was working obviously I was teaching dance so I'd go to vet school all day and then I'd drive to teach work I wasn't allowed to do that I had to get on the bus and I would just be like okay but if I get on the bus that's going to make me an hour late for work so I'm just going to drive and they would tell me I couldn't do that and you know when you're just like at 20 how old was I 28 you, no you can't tell me that sorry like no so it was like the lifestyle as well was really tricky it just wasn't sitting well with me um, and then when I got the offer to go and do an awesome contract, I think I was just a bit like, yep, okay, off I go, back to doing contracts, so I left. It was a really hard uh, decision, and I think if I'd have gone to vet school at 18, I'd have stuck it out, you know, if I'd have had the student loan and it had been paid for and I wasn't going to end up with all of that debt around my neck, then I think it would have been a completely different story because I absolutely loved it. I, the the lessons the learning about it it was the lifestyle that I just couldn't get on board with I really struggled with yeah so, yeah. so you left and so you got this contract so what was the contract uh it was uh performing in like uh Christmas parties and I was a mermaid and I got to do aerial silks and fire and basically everything that I love doing so I was like yes please I'll do that and yeah, so I took that contract and then I was back into being a dancer again. So then off I went on another tour and then another tour and then, yeah. So you were touring a, touring a lot back on, back on the road. Yes. Okay. So would you say that when you were starting to tour again, that you were using the touring as an escape mechanism or now was it work? Touring was now work. Touring was now, um, yeah, I really, I went back to enjoying what I did because I'd had such a break from it. So I really, really loved being back on tour. But then this time, every time I came home from a tour, I would end up having to um, teach for somebody else or work in a coffee shop. Um, and at the age that I was, I was like, right, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I, every time I go away, I'm on tour in these huge arenas, having amazing time, thousands of people are watching me. I'm coming home to nothing. Hmm. And that's what was hard that time was that I was like, I feel like I want something for my, of my own, you know? Like, hmm. so the tours were awesome. And then every time I would come back, I'd be like, oh, I've got, I'm back to nothing again. So that's what was hard that time touring. And that sounds like you felt lonely when you when all the well I had I had my partner 
Mm. Um, so I'll come back, but I, I had nothing like career-wise. I think I'm very career-driven. Um, mm. I had my partner and that had its issues in itself. But um, so I had him and I had a flat with him. Um, so, but I just didn't have, like I couldn't pay the rent. I couldn't pay my way because I had nothing. I had to go and do these jobs that I just didn't, it wasn't my calling, you know, it's not what I wanted. So um, that's when my business started being born. And I found my calling. Oh, I see. So, so you were you were touring around, um, performing in front of thousands of people, but then you ended up doing jobs that were were great and fine jobs yeah. to do. But it just wasn't sitting with you because you knew there was something else that you wanted to do. There was a different yeah. purpose to your life. Yeah, so, and I spent years. I spent years going on tour and then coming back and doing working wherever and. Yeah. absolutely loving it but this time it just was like mm, I feel it feels different it feels like I want something for my of my own right I see and I know before we started recording you started talking about this relationship with the um guy uh so can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah of course so um it was a three-year relationship when I met him it was like as I said love at first sight I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world um I'd never I'd only ever, I'd never really known about any of, you know, any of my friends or anything going through anything similar, but all of my friends hated him and my family didn't like him, but I thought he was the most amazing person in the world. And I just couldn't see why they didn't. He was so charming, so charming and so good looking and promised me the absolute world and I completely fell for it. Um, I, I think I might find it quite difficult to talk about, but, um, cause it's still quite new, but, okay. um, I'll try. <laughs> yeah, I just completely fell for it, fell in love with it. Listen, everything he promised, he didn't deliver anything that he promised, but I still would believe every single promise that he told me. Mm. Um, and so we moved in together. We planned to get married. Um, Yeah. And we, we moved house three times, you know, we are, we had our ups and downs, we argued loads, but then when it was good, I used to think it was the most amazing thing in the world. Now, obviously hindsight tells me no, absolutely not. Mm. Um, but you know, it got to the point where it was, it got to the point where one of my friends actually heard an argument between us and was like, you know, that that's not normal that he talks to you like that. Right. And I was like, ah, oh, uh, oh, we always, oh, we just, he shouts all the time. He's got mental health issues and I'm trying to work through the, I'm trying to fix him. I'm trying to help him. He's just got a bad temper and that's, that's, you know, it's okay. I'm and it was a few weeks later when he came back to me and was like, Jess, I'm just checking that you're okay because what I heard the other day wasn't normal and you need to get out of that. And that's when the sort of penny dropped and I was like, oh, well, if this guy is telling me this, who I really trust, mm -hmm. then it's obviously right. And I'd been having, um, again, a lot of stories all in one. I'd been having NLP therapy for my business, actually, to try and get rid of limiting beliefs with my business. Because mm -hmm. uh, I was kept telling myself I was a dancer and I, didn't, I wasn't a businesswoman. And so I paid for this NLP therapy. And they are incredible. Um, and it was then that actually, in the end, I just had this moment of clarity where I was like, he was screaming and screaming at me. And I just stood still and was like, this isn't my truth. This isn't the life that I want to live. And 
I literally grabbed my keys and my cat and I left and I left. <laughs> keys and cat in that order, love it. That's all I needed. My keys, <laughs> my cat. <laughs> ah, so there's a couple of things that um I'd like to unpick there. Yeah. First one was you used the term I thought I could fix him. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think having been through a lot of mental health myself and having the parents that I have who are so very understanding and my dad works in mental health, you know, I met him and he was this amazing person and then obviously I started seeing a different side to him, which was obviously the narcissistic side, but I thought it was depression or lack of confidence. And so having worked through my own low mood and lack of confidence and had had CBT, which I really thought was amazing at the time for me. And I was like, no, I can help this guy. He's just, he's just, bless him. He's never had help before. He's never had a chance. Nobody's ever said, given him a chance and said, you know, look, let's go through this together. So we had relationship counseling to try and work through issues. And I was, you know, very, uh, I stuck up for him a lot and was like, no, you know, you know, his past, his past was awful too. Like, even to this day now, I, I really hope he gets the help that he needs and deserves, despite the fact of how much he hurt me, that ultimately I do want him to get the help that he needs because he's had an awful past too. And it's just led to this, you know, they say the abuser becomes the abusee or whatever way around, the abusee becomes the abuser. And he's had an awful past too. And so I just wanted to help him and I could see that it was depression, but obviously uh, what well, I was completely wrong and being completely gaslighted, they call it, and you tricked and, you know, smoke and mirrors and all of that. And uh, it was, yeah, he basically wasn't treating me very well because he hadn't been treated very well. So, hmm. so it was having a, a knock-on effect. And yeah. Okay, and and then your friend who you, who you say you trusted. So it's interesting that, um, not that you didn't trust your parents or your other friends, but it seems like that conversation was a turning point. So people had already said to you, you know, we're not sure about him, we don't like him, you couldn't quite understand why nobody would like him. And then it took uh, the conversation, which I, I believe was probably an incredibly brave conversation, because a lot of times when we try to interfere in other people's relationships, it, they don't want to hear it or they'll take the side of the partner and you lose that friendship for a period of time. So yeah. He really kind of stepped up to the mark there and had a courageous conversation with you um, because he obviously loves and cares about you very much. Well, that's what I think yeah. is so strange. It was actually not one of my closest friends. It was just, it was just a guy I happened to be working with at the time and mm. I'd been working with him for like two months and he i just i liked him we really got on together but i didn't know him for a long time it's not like we were best friends it i think the fact was that he had just been there he'd heard the argument none yeah. of my, all of my other friends have only ever told about the arguments right I've, they've never heard the argument they i'd only ever told them and then so when they'd say oh yeah but he says this about and i'd be like no no no, no. I, oh, I only said that to you because i was upset whereas he had said that to me oh. and i'd told my friends upset but I'd backtracked and I covered it all up, all of the time. Yeah. Whereas this guy had actually heard the argument, he'd heard the screaming, and he'd seen me hiding in a cupboard because I was petrified. So yeah. I think that's why when he pulled me to one side, and he, as well, he's like a 30-year-old man, you know, like a straight male, 
all of my friends, <laughs> you know, female, single, you get lots of gay best friends out on the town, them sort of friends, they're all my friends, but this straight male who's been there, you know, helped his sister through a similar thing, <laughs> wanted to check in and check that I was okay, and that's what made me stop and go, oh, it must be bad. Mm, excellent. Yeah. There you go. See, I've made an assumption there. On, on yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just yeah made an assumption that they were very close to you, but they they still stepped up and had that conversation with you. Yeah, I'm very grateful of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what happened next? Um. So you got your cat uh, keys. Say that again. Sorry. You got your cat me keys. Yeah, go Wait, honestly, honestly, that was one of the hardest days in my of my life. I was with this guy who I'd been in with for three and a half years. We were in this gorgeous house that I absolutely loved, and we were going into lockdown. Um, and I'd had all of this NLP therapy that just really, just really, really unpacked all of the things I was dealing with about Matt. Uh, limiting belief everything all of that had gone and so I was left with okay all of that's gone now why am I still miserable and obviously it was because of this new partner and um yeah that I knew that I was gonna leave I had it in my head and I was terrified of telling him because I knew how he would react I was petrified and what does that say in itself and it's when I found myself on the phone to the national abuse helpline that I was like uh, okay well I'm, I need to go here this isn't the life this isn't my truth if my friend had told me that they were on the phone to the national abuse helpline I would go and pick them up mm. you know mm. so I packed a bag and put it in my van I've got a huge van because I've got a circus school right so I packed my bag and I put it in a van and it was in there for about 10 days because I knew I wanted to leave but I was too scared to and then eventually um how did it come to a head it just I don't know, he just, one day, I think he could tell that I was going to leave. Mm. And um, I think I had a day off because at the time I was Zooming every day. And so in my head, I was like, I need to do it when I've got a day off because I can't Zoom somebody, do a circus lesson on Zoom in the van <laughs> on the way whilst I'm crying, you know? <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> so I think I had a day off and I think he kind of knew, it must have been my behaviour or whatever. And the screaming started just hot like horrendous like horrendous horrendous screaming got physical and I just knew and I was so calm and that was one of the hardest days of my life bearing in mind probably only harder than burying my boyfriend mm. and finding out that he passed away I would put that up way up there as one of the hardest days of my life and I had my incredible family house to go to so how these women leave relationships like that with nowhere to go to they need a medal Hmm. honestly honestly that was one of the hardest days of my life and I just I had to summon from somewhere I had to say to him look this is silly because he was screaming at me backed me into the corner of the garage screaming in my face and I had to say this is silly we love each other let's have a cup of tea and sort it out because he'd hidden my phone my keys everything right because right. he could tell I was gonna leave right. so we went in to have a cup of tea and as we went in my cat was right there <laughs> and my keys were right there and 
I flicked a bubble into the cat carrier and the cat, bless him, ran straight in. And I was like, you're such a good boy. And then and I grabbed my keys and I just went, I just went. Because I didn't want a cup of tea. I just wanted him to stop screaming at me and I wanted to leave. And that was how I had to do it. And he followed me to the petrol station because he'd ran me out of petrol. So there was no petrol in my van. He followed me. I fell to my knees when I saw that he followed me. He blocked me and wouldn't let me leave. It was just awful. And then I drove home and ended up in my safe house with my parents. So that was it. <laughs> Excellent. So um, there's a couple of things there, if I can just <laughs> that, if you don't mind. Okay. The behaviour that you've described just in that one instance, I think, gives us clarity on the controlling behavior that he was capable of would that be fair to say 100 percent, yeah yeah so that's the sort of relationship you were in at, mm-hmm. at this time that um at which you managed to leave and go and stay with your parents um you also talked about having a circus school yes i know just before um we i cut in last time you started talking about your purpose and that you knew that the other sort of jobs that you had done in between touring weren't the ones you wanted to do, but you also wanted to have a base that you were getting to a stage in your life where you wanted to stop touring, but wanted a base. So this is obviously where the circus school, I, I use the word obviously, because it might not be obvious. So let's get rid of the word, obviously. This is where the circus school was created. Yes. So tell us a little bit about the circus school and how that came to be. Uh, it came to be because, as I said, I wanted something of my own. And actually, I have to be fair to him, the partner that we just spoke about um, really did help me come up with it and gave me the confidence to open my own school because I was going to open a dance school because I'm a dancer. But there's a lot in the area. Um, but there's no circus schools, right? And I can do all of these awesome circus things. So why wouldn't I teach a circus school? So actually, in fairness to him, he set up the website. He did the branding. He gave me the confidence to open my first um, Easter camp. And uh, The Greatest Showman came out at the same time. So ideal timing. Thank you, universe. Uh, and so The Greatest Showman came out. I expected to have like 10 kids. And I had 40. It was brilliant. Uh, completely sold out. And then they were begging me for um, weekly classes. And I was like, no, I don't want to do weekly classes. I still want to go on tour. You know, I want to come back. It just, I just want something that's mine when I come back off tour. And then I was like, do I actually? Or do I just want something that's mine? And so I slowly put the feelers out there to see what a weekly school would, you know, how popular it would be. And two and a half years later, and it's full despite coronavirus that's amazing yeah and we teach um aerial hoop aerial silks acrobatics contortion juggling hula hooping still walking basically everything and it's a fully inclusive school everybody's welcome to our circus um yeah everyone's welcome all ages we even do adult classes uh it's just it is phenomenal it's everything that i have worked towards all of the inclusivity, all of the mental health, everything is just all managed to come together in this awesome school. And I really, really love it. And it's interesting when you talk about your school, of uh, your whole demeanour. So for those people that, that, that can't see Jess, she's very animated. You can probably tell and hear it in her voice. She's very animated and excited and passionate about the circus school. You can really see that. You can really see that it's your purpose and you've kind of found your, your way forward. Yeah. yeah. 
for sure. Yeah. I think I just like having somewhere for the, I don't want to say, well, how do I describe? The children who don't enjoy football so much, the children who went to ballet, but it was too strict or went to gymnastics and it was too strict or don't have many friends or don't have much confidence or haven't found the thing that they're good at come to circus and they come and love it and so i've got this whole class of completely different children who are just one big circus family now and it's just amazing yeah and i bet it does wonders for their confidence too oh for sure you can see the difference the children that i've had for two and a half years like you can see the difference in them it's it's so rewarding and um, to see how much of a difference it makes to their life because you know there's like scientific evidence to prove that juggling is good for maths so it's the same part of your brain that you use to do like logical equations and things so for a child who's struggling with their maths um what is it we came up with it over uh, over lockdown if in maths you're having a struggle why don't you just go and juggle <laughs> and like that's what we came up with like these kids and they would just be like Oh my goodness, okay. And so they'd go and, they, and it's not going to improve their timetables. They're not learning them, but it's that part of your brain, you know, and it's looking mm. forward and the parents take that. They love that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's that. And it's also, you know, one of the children just not the most sporty, can't, not the most rhythmical, um, put on a pair of stilts and walked up and down the hall on stilts. The only child that I've ever seen. To, what? Yeah. You know? what a massive boosting confidence that is for that child and you know now obviously loads of them can do it because they're like i want to do it um, <laughs> so, but to see that is just amazing this child who comes really uh you know shoulders down slouched a bit grumpy and then they they pick up whatever it is flower sticks and they can flip it around 12 times and you're just like whoa like hi yeah <laughs> there you are yeah that's amazing. Yeah, it's really That's good. That's really amazing. I'd really like to see that. Yeah. That would be, that, yeah, I can, I can imagine the feeling that you get as a, a person who can teach those skills and watch somebody develop and grow like that is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I can tell you love it. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you found your purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look back at those last three and a half years, in the um abuse i was gonna say abusive would that be the right word for it abusive relationship would that be fair do you think yeah um, uh, I, learned, I was very fortunate to um be put in touch with a narcissistic abuse counselor coach and basically i didn't even i would never have said it was abuse i would have just said it was a toxic relationship mm. but since speaking to her everything is like textbook right abuse so i'm more than happy to take that title actually you know I didn't want to use it in a flippant way because obviously there's always two sides to every story. Of course, of um, course. And his side would be very different, obviously. But having spoken to this and learned a lot about narcissism and yes, I would go ahead and say yes, that is what was going on. Okay. So looking back at that, what were the biggest lessons for you? Again, uh, <laughs> it's just a big lesson in life. Nobody knew. You know, I was the most happy, jovial person who bounced around. Mm. And then I'd get home from work and I'd sit in my van and cry because I wouldn't want to go into, into the house. Mm. But at work, I'd just been teaching these kids, la, 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 life is amazing. Yeah. 
So you don't know what's going on with people. And some if somebody's maybe a bit moody or um sensitive, there's something else going on there. So just take a second and don't be like, oh, they were rude. Think about it. The way in which she acted, you have to say to yourself, the way in which she acted was either out of character or, you know, an exaggeration of what I would have expected. And therefore, there must be something going on in her life. Mm. What can I do to help that person? Uh, rather than, they were rude, I'll never talk to them again. There's something going on there. You as a person can help, either by not saying anything or, you know, by even just understanding and not making that assumption and not making that judgment because mm. somebody might just be having an off day or, you know, might, uh, and they might be a little bit short with you, but it's not because it's you. It's just because of what everything they're going through. So it is just, you know, your reaction to other people's actions. You need to be accountable for that. And so if somebody is rude to you, you know, take a second to think, actually, is something going on in their life? Can I help them in any way? Or are they just rude? <laughs> you know, maybe they are just rude and we shouldn't, you know, give the excuse to everybody. But that is what I think is my biggest thing is, yeah, is just take a second to think, actually, have they acted in that way because they're hurting? Can I do anything to help them? Or have they acted in that way uh, because that's just their personality, you know? Hmm. And also, even if you wanted to help people, maybe you can't help them. So maybe just being patient and standing by and not making that assumption is the best thing actually you can do. Yeah. I often find in life that kindness is the one thing that you're yeah. never wrong. That's so lovely. Yeah. yeah. And it is, it is true. At some stage, we all have a little crisis or a big crisis. And we don't show it automatically in the way that you might expect us to show it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that there's not something going on. So that's amazing. Thank you for sharing your amazing story. That's okay. Stories. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so your, your life journey so far, and I'm sure there's going to be <laughs> it's more as, you know, as, as you go through your life. But I'm very grateful just to spend some time with you and spend the last hour just chatting through in a very condensed version of your stories but sharing the lessons that you've learned and I know that the um, just repeat the name of the heart foundation for young people in case anyone missed it it's cardiac risk in the young cry um, and you can get the heart check by just going to testmyheart.org obviously at the moment they're really struggling um so you may need to wait a year or so for your heart check. But if you're in between 14 and 34, go and get it done. Yeah. Thank you. I know that's such an important charity for you. Yeah. So, yeah. so anybody listening, can, um, it just Google the website. And if anybody's in any doubt or wants any more advice, there's your cat just calling you from <laughs> the window. So you won't be able to see them as Jess's cat has just made star appearance in the video of the keys and cat. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. And uh, yeah, and if anybody gets in contact with me, I shall pass their details on to you. Thanks again, Jess. Fascinating story. I've certainly learned something today. And if any of you have been affected by today's podcast, please don't hesitate to get in contact. 
And again, it's the cardiac risk in the young. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hey everybody, Nikki again. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast and thank you for joining me. You can find me on social media at Nikki Comms Coach at Twitter and The Communication Coach on Facebook and thecommunicationcoach.co.uk. Please like, share and review and I look forward to speaking to you soon.